thank you for your grace and your mercy toward us. And uh, Lord, we pray that you would be with your people today as we uh, try to learn from your word and to grow in our love and our faith and our understanding of your gospel and how it should affect the way that we should live and love one another. Lord, we need you to focus our minds and our hearts to hear from you, O oh God. Be with us. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen. So we're in session number two of unity and diversity in a local church. We didn't get a chance to finish next week, so I'm going to have to try to get through these things. If you don't have a handout, it's handouts on the uh, sides, one by Sean, and I think that's... So we're going to be mainly in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, 3, and 4. We kind of be bouncing around all over there in that. So last week... We talked about God's purposes for unity and diversity in the church. So can anyone who was here last week remember why God cares about unity and diversity in a local church? Anybody remember why, what we talked about at all? Is anybody going to talk to me? Nobody? All right. So <clears throat> the reason why we talked about that... Uh, Unity was important was because it displays the Lord's power, displays the Lord's power and salvation to unify people from every background centered around a reality that's the gospel that transcends everything that the world uses to separate, right? So whether that's social status, ethnicity, age, sex, economic status, these are things that the gospel transcends all of those things. Right? That doesn't mean that those things don't exist and they disappear. It's just that our unity in Christ transcends all of those things. And they're far more important that, than any of those distinctions that, um, you know, that might try to, or differences that those things have with us. But the gospel, our love for Christ and our salvation transcends all of these. And it's on the basis of our shared salvation in Christ that we can be unified regardless of these differences that we have, right? So the fact that the Lord can unify people who shouldn't be unified is a testimony to the power of the gospel, and that um, when we are centered around that and our relationships are mainly and primarily based on the fact that we've been saved, then we ought to have a church that people would see and say something's different is going on there other than just, you know, some kind of man-made fabricated unity, right? So <clears throat> we are in, um, I guess that's supposed to be my introduction, right? <laughs> so again, I'm going to ask this question. Does anybody remember why this was important to God? Any other reasons? No? Nobody's going to talk to me today. No. All right. So this unity and diversity in God's work. So basically what we were trying to point to last week and in this session is, is that the difference between real and artificial unity in a church, right? So in order to do that, we're going to spend a majority of our time in various parts of Ephesians chapter 2 and 4. 
So if you got your Bibles, turn into Ephesians 2, 1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The Bible says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the Apostle Paul here in the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2 has given us a summary of our salvation, a summary of the gospel. And then what he does is he moves on after these 10 verses in verse 11 to one of the primary implications of our salvation in Christ. And he says this in verse 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, but now in Christ, you who were, <clears throat> you who were, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what you see is, is one of the primary implications of our being saved is unity, right, among this diverse group of people. So here you got this unity in Christ among Jew and Gentile. So imagine for a moment, if you could, if you had the responsibility of planting a church in first century Ephesus. So what would be the easiest and least stressful way to accomplish this? All right, would it be to plant a church of both Jew and Gentile or would it be to plant a church full of Jews over here and Gentiles over here, and eventually one day these two churches could come together as they mature in Christ? Which one would be the easiest one? What's that? Split them up. It would be easier to do that, right? It would be less conflict. It would be less rubbing against each other the wrong way, right? But that's... so. Well, I'm sorry. Right. You wouldn't have all of this difficulty. Obviously, it would be easier culturally to separate people socially like this. Right. But that's not the way that's not what we see in these passages. What we see is from day one, we see a church, a diverse church 
unified together under the banner of Christ. And it was on account of the difficulty, that unity between what man would see as natural enemies testifies to the wisdom of God, right? Testify, it is <clears throat> what makes the world see that God is at work is when two groups of people who ordinarily should be fighting are loving one another. That makes sense to you? So it's far too easy, it is far too easy for us to gather together based on common social differences, right? You cannot assume that God is at work there, right? If we all think the same, act the same, believe the same things, look the same way, have the same political affiliations, and we're all in a room getting together, it is a bad assumption for you to think God is working over there. They could just be getting along because they all believe the same things and nobody's rubbing each other the wrong way. That makes sense to you? So it's, it's on account of the differences that we can see that God is at work. So this week, we're going to kind of be going through the same verses, but the emphasis is a little different. So if you go to, I just read part of 11, but if we read from Ephesians 2.11 through yeah, chapter 2.11 through Ephesians chapter 3.21, if you were to take some time and go through all of these and find all of the verbs, find all of the verbs in that passage, right, what you would notice is, is that all of these verbs are descriptive. None of them are imperatives telling you to do anything except for one. And the only one is in verse 11. It says, therefore, remember, right? Everything else he says, like, I'll read it to you. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called us uncircumcision by what is called a circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Again, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope in the world and without God. But now Christ Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, became, and he came and preached peace to you who were once far off, and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure is being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what Paul is doing here is typical of Paul. The first three chapters of this book, he's not telling you to do anything but hear the gospel. This is what God has already done in Christ. And then later on, he gives you how you ought to respond to that in obedience. 
But the first thing he gives to you is this is what God has done, right? This is what God has done. So, and the reason that's important is because what this passage is doing, it's highlighting the unity, the God-given unity that we have in Christ already. And that's why he tells you to remember. So in a real sense, achieving unity in a local church is not so much about what we need to accomplish, right? It's not about what we need to accomplish or about what we need to do. In a real sense, it's about what God has already done for us in Christ, right? So secondly, this principle not only applies to just this Jew and Gentile distinction, right? This Jew and Gentile divide that's in view, that's, that the Ephesians is talking about. So when he says, so he gives us this idea like there, this wall of separation that was there is no longer there anymore because you are now one in Jesus Christ. You're unified as one body in Jesus Christ, right? And then he says in Ephesians 4, 3, which we'll get to later, is, is that we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, right? And then, so the, and then this principle then applies to all kinds of separations in the church because in a parallel passage in Colossians, what Paul says, he extends this principle, right, to other differences that we have and where he says in Colossians 3.11, he says, here there is no Jew, no Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So the unity that exists between believers is something that God has already done in Christ. So it's not something that you and I should be working for. It's just something that you and I should be working to maintain, right? It's something that we should be working to maintain. And that's really the main point of this lesson today, right? Unity and diversity is not something that we create in a local church. It's something that God has done, right? It's something that God has done for his glory, right? So first, and this is how he does this. So he does it in two ways. First, he does it by giving every Christian a new identity, okay? Every Christian has, can you close that door? Please, thank you. So every Christian has been given a new identity, thank you. So that's primarily what Paul has in mind when he's going through, when we just read through Ephesians 2 and 3. He says, when he says all these you are statements, you are fellow citizens, you are members of the household of God, you are a new humanity, you are part of this new temple. That's all this is in chapter 2 of Ephesians. So the, what the gospel does is the gospel fashions a new identity in Christ, in every Christian that transcends your nationality, your ethnicity, your education, your social class, your, your physical abilities, all of those things. When you become a Christian, all of those things become secondary to your identity in Christ. That makes sense to you? They become secondary to your identity in Christ. So that's the first thing that, the God, that, that God does in order to unify us. The second thing that he does is this. Now, this is implicit in the book of Acts. It's not a, you're not going to, I can't, not going to be able to give you book, chapter, verse, so just bear with me, okay? God created unity by giving us a desire to love one another, right? 
by, to love one another. So your forgiveness in Christ, the fact that God has forgiven you in Christ, what it does, it creates in you love for one another. That's what it does for us, right? Because we've been forgiven, now we're capable of forgiving other people who've offended us, who rub us the wrong way, and who are different than us. So even those who are difficult people to love, right, we are now capable of loving them. Why? Because we know, based on our sin, we were very difficult to love, but God, in spite of our sin, loved us anyway and saved us. Amen? So that gives us the ability to love people who are difficult to love in that way. And John 13, 34 says this, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another, right? So it's not that becoming a Christian obligates you to love one another in a sense, although it does, right? It's that becoming a Christian gives you new desires and new ability to love one another, right? So our identity in Christ and the love generated by our being saved, what they, it generates this unity among diverse people, right? You didn't do that. You did not do that. You did not save yourself. Any, you didn't get to pick your family, your parents and your brothers and sisters any more than you got to pick your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Okay? So the, our identity in Christ and our, this love generated by the gospel, they generate diversity because Christians, people who have been authentically saved, right, they're going to be attracted by the preaching of the gospel, not all the other theatrics, right? So hypothetically, if there's, you go to a town and there's only one church in that town that's preaching the gospel, all the Christians are going to flock there, right? And if you are in a diverse town and there's only one place where the gospel is being heard, it's going to be a diverse church. Not because the church did a diversity program, but because God saves people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You understand? So, what the gospel does, inherently, it generates diversity because of this attraction to hearing the word of God, right? And it won't matter. Let me not say it like that, because it will matter. Right, But you will put aside your personal preferences and being uncomfortable with social things in order to hear the word of God, to have your soul fed. Right? In order to have your soul fed. That makes sense to you? Yeah. So when, some, when, a person, when a person is willing to sit, sit aside their social preferences, right? In order to hear the gospel being preached and will rub elbows with people that they ordinarily wouldn't 
in order to hear the gospel preached? That's somebody that's acting like a Christian. That makes sense to you? That is somebody that's acting like a Christian. If you, if you get a chance, read 1 Corinthians. I think it's start, like maybe starting at chapter 7 all the way through 14. That, enti- that entire passage of Scripture is about, that section of Scripture is about Christians waiving their rights. Right? It's like you have the right to do something, right? And it's lawful for you to do it but I'm willing to waive my rights for the good and the benefit of those other people around me, right? That's how you act when you become a mature Christian. You set aside the things that are secondary for the things that are primary. That make sense to you? So, what, and all that is is that you're acting according to your new identity. You act according to your new identity and your new desires. All of us have natural family members, right? that we genuinely don't get along with, right? But you don't say, I'm no longer a part of this family anymore. I'm not attending the, maybe some of y'all do, but you should repent, right? I'm not going to the family reunion because I don't like Uncle Bob, right? I'm going to completely avoid, if you do that, stop it, repent. That's your family, honor your mother and your father, right? But that doesn't disconnect, that doesn't make you want to disconnect from your natural family, right? It's the same kind of attitude that we have here, you should be having, right? So, of course, living this out is hard, it's not easy. It is very difficult to live like this as a believer, right? This unity and diversity. So before we immediately jump to our responsibility and forget this amazing truth, this unity and diversity that God is doing, we, we need to not do this. We need to not run immediately or make the mistake of running immediately to what do I have to do to make this happen until you actually understand what's happening, okay? So we got to spend some time here, right? Because there's a way that we can do unity that is unbiblical and, and it's not necessarily wrong. It's not necessarily wrong. It's just not going to create what the gospel does, that makes sense to you? So like, for example, right, I'm a Golden State Warrior fan. John Butler's a Golden State Warrior fan, right? Now, we can, we can unify around that, right? We can completely unify around that until he sins against me, right? I don't care if you're a Warrior fan then. That means nothing to me at that point. I will put all of that aside. If I'm not a believer and he's not a believer and the only thing that we have in common is that we like the same basketball team, when he sin against me, it's going to be a fight in the parking lot. Right? That's the, way the world, that's the way the world responds to things. When that's the only point of contact and only commonality that we have, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> that's, don't lose the force for the trees. Listen, the point is, is that, but when you're a Christian and your unity is built around that, we could literally have nothing else in common, right? And when you sin against me, if I'm a believer, I'm going to work hard. Actually, I'm already having it in my mind made up that I'm going to forgive you when you sin against me, right? Regardless of whether we have any common social whatever, Right? And so, we, so what you don't want to do, right, the wrong move would be to, like, muscle your way into unity, right? 
So you shouldn't be thinking like, okay, I'm going to love these people because I'm supposed to. That's not what you should be aiming for. Now, there, you may need to do that, but that's not what our ultimate goal is, right? So our standard is, Rome, is found in Romans 12.10, where it says we should be loving one another with brotherly affection, and we should have a sincere brotherly love for one another. That's what we should be aiming for, a sincere brotherly love, right? All the ladies in here know this is true, right? If you are married or have a significant other and they say, I'm just doing this out of sheer duty, I really don't love you, I really don't have no affection for you, I'm just doing this because God told me to. What, what is that? How many of you ladies are going to appreciate that? Now, I see no hands. Because that's not, that's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming for brotherly affection and sincere brotherly love for one another. So our unity and diversity is not supposed to be forced upon us by mandate, but it's supposed to be genuine and affectionate. So we need to remember that for Christians, our aim is not these natural social types of human effort type of way of getting unity, but God is working unity and diversity wherever the gospel is believed, right? Because it's a supernatural thing that none of us have done. God has already done it. We're just fighting to maintain it. That makes sense to you? We're fighting to maintain it. We got any questions so far? None. Okay. So this God built, we're on Roman numeral number three. How does this God-built unity change us? So again, it's not our job to create unity. God has already done that in Christ. Roman numeral three, if you got a handout. Okay, so what I've been trying to stress from the scripture is based on Ephesians chapter two and three is that our identity as believer, believers transcend any kind of social differences and the effect of love, the effect of the love, the grace, the mercy that we've received in, in, in salvation, what it does is, is it helps us and causes us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of whatever social differences that we have, okay? So, but the question is, is how do these facts change things when you feel annoyed or you feel bothered or offended or sinned against by another church member? That's the question, right? Because remember, the context of this passage is in a local church, not universal. It's a local church in Ephesus, right? So the question is, is that we're one in Christ. Everybody's going to say amen to that, or you probably wouldn't be here this morning, okay? But the real question is, is how do all of these facts about our salvation change the way that we operate with one another when somebody sins against you? when somebody offends you, when somebody hurts you, when somebody does not have the same political position that you have? How do all of the realities of being in Christ change how you function and operate with that person? That makes sense to you? That's the question that we have to answer. So in a word, what it does, it gives us hope, right? It gives us hope because, in, okay, so Ephesians 3.13 says this, so I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is to your glory, right? So the God-honoring unity that exists between these Jews and Gentiles through the gospel, it's the fruit of Paul's work and Paul's suffering, and it's to the glory of that local church. And so the fact that God has created this unity turns our pursuit 
into living out this unity into a guaranteed discovery. Does that make sense to you? So you're not fighting to make unity. Unity already exists, right? So every time you get into a, a situation with a believer and they rub you the long, wrong way, if you obey God and attempt to love your brother and sister in Christ the way that you ought to, collectively as a local church, what's guaranteed already is that we're going to be unified. There's an answer to the question. There's an answer to the problem already laid out for us. We just got to get to it. So as, listen, so as a point of illustration, it's the difference between um, like a math problem and the concept of math, right? So if I'm doing a math problem in class, the problem to the answer is clear. I just don't know what it is. I just got to figure it out. Okay? But the concept of math, that's a much broader topic. Okay? So unity in the church is more like a math problem than the concept of math itself. So yes, a math problem might be hard. It might be frustrating. It might take a long time to get to the answer. But you know that there's end in sight. There's some end in sight. Because God has already created this unity here already. We just have to work to get to it. So, in whatever, if you have a particularly challenging relationship with somebody at the church, you should be thinking, we're already unified in Christ. What do we need to do to get to this unity that we already have? Not create it. That makes sense to you? And so because... The Lord has already secured this unity in Christ. What we have, what you have now is what you need to do now is persevere. Persevere through the difficult part until we actually live out the unity that we already have. That makes sense to you? It's this, it's because like, remember last week we talked about how Unity and diversity, we talked about it in a marriage, right? You got two distinct people. Men and women are very different. If you don't think that, I don't know what planet you're living on, okay? Men and women are very different. It's difficult for men and women to get together and not bump heads, okay? You put two sinners in a room together, they're going to bump heads even if they're two males or two females. You put two sinners in a room together and one's male and one's female, it's definitely happening, Okay? But nevertheless, the Bible says they complement one, one another, and when they become married, two become one flesh. It's the diversity and unity. And the reason why fights and arguments and strife and all of that comes up is because we forget that. Amen. You forget that. Amen. You forget, you forget that. Though we are diverse, we are one. If you sink, I sink. If I sink, you sink. If the leg is sick, the whole body's going to be sick. So that, that concept extends from marriage and to the church. You know these ideas, you're only as strong as your weakest link. You should not be having an idea that your brother's in sin in your local congregation and that not, that's not affecting you. Or I'm in sin I have this secret sin that I'm hiding in my heart, and it's not affecting Sidarius. 
you should not be thinking that. Any more than a husband should be thinking that I could be sinning in secret and it's not affecting my family. Or a wife could be thinking, I have these secret sins in my heart and it's not affecting my children. A church member any more than like that, a no church member should be thinking that I could be secretly sinning at home and it's not affecting this church. You only think that because you don't think you unify with these people. Because you don't think that this is one body. That's the only way you can think that. Right? So I'm chained to you. We're unified together. Right? We're running this race together because God has sovereignly put us all together in this local church. Right? And if we're running and I'm chained to you and you don't run with me, I'm going to pick you up and carry me because I'm not losing. Do you understand? I'm not just going to leave you there. I can't. And if you don't have that attitude, it's because you don't think we're already unified. Do you understand? You are already unified in Christ. You're not producing it. You're just fighting to maintain it. That's it. That's all we're doing. That makes sense to you? So, of course, the world says something completely different. Okay? What the world says is, is that we, well, I don't want to say it's completely different. That's not true, actually. Because what they say is, is that the world says that we can be unified around our common humanity. That we can be unified our common humanity. And that if, if we just realize that we all the same and we all bleed the same blood, that if we just remembered that, we could all just get along and live peaceably with one another. And so I guess to some degree that, it, that could be true to a degree, but what the Bible says is that our common humanity is insufficient for any kind of real unity because of human sin, right? And I submit to you that human history is full of conflict between people who have a common humanity. And Jesus promises that conflict will continue. There'll be wars and rumors of wars till the end of time. And so what this suggests is, is, despite the fact that we have this common humanity, right, that has been overshadowed by the power of human sin, right? If I put a group of people that look, act, and believe the same things in a group long enough, somebody's going to kill somebody else eventually. So our common humanity can only go so far, Right? So, but none of this is room for pessimism for us as a church because our sin has been overshadowed by the power of the gospel and our pessimism has been overshadowed by God's promises. So that brother or sister who drives you crazy, who drives you up a wall, who rubs you the wrong way, who makes you angry, God has already secured unity with that person And what you and I have to do is ask God to help us persevere so we can actually, so it actually can look like we are unified. That makes sense to you? That's what we need. So I got a question for us, okay? Because I've been talking all theoretics right now, right? Theoretical things. Like, So what are some ways in which this hope that we have around this God-built unity How should it change the way you relate to people in the church? 
How should it change the way that we relate to people who rub us the wrong way in First Baptist? No, let me, let me restate the question. You, this is a you question, a personal question. You need, if you're going to answer this question, you need to say, start with personal pronouns. Okay? If, since all these things are true, we're unified in Christ already, how is that going to change the way you relate to one of your brothers and sisters that rub you the wrong way? That's right. So that is exactly what I would have to do. That's right. So we're like very, this is negative. We shouldn't do this. Often we disconnect our theology from our real life. Okay? So all of us know I'm saved by grace. You know, the Lord looked upon me, saw me in my sin. And despite all of my sin, he saved me in spite of all of that. We all know that. We, most of us believe, you wouldn't be here, I don't believe you would be here if you didn't actually believe these things. We know that Christ died for all of my sins, past, present, and future. He threw my sins in a sea of forgetfulness. And he'll never, there's, he'll never leave me, he'll never forsake me. We believe we hold all these truths in our hearts, right? The problem is, is that when we go to put the rubber to the road, and to, to quote the verse that Miss Lucretia just talked about is, we should forgive each other the way Christ, that God forgave us in Christ, you're supposed to take that theology and then apply it the same way. So tell me, what sin can you commit right now that will cause God to leave you and forsake you? That's, that's a legitimate question. What sin can you commit right now that your Lord and Savior would turn his back on you? None, right? So then that's how you're supposed to forgive your brothers and sisters in the Lord, right? Now, it would be pastoral negligence if I tell you that you could sin against people and there's no, like, ramifications for that. I'm not saying that, that at all, okay? What I'm saying is, is forgiveness. You should forgive one another in Christ the way that Christ forgave you, right? All, are all of your sins, future sins forgiven? Yes. 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 <laughs> Does anybody doubt this? Are all of your sins, past, present, and future forgiven? Yes. Right. So then, God has already determined in eternity that the sins that you were committing in the future were forgiven. That's how you're supposed to operate with your brothers and sisters in the faith. Husbands, that's how you're supposed to operate with your wives. Wives, that's how you're supposed to operate with your husbands, with your children, right? Now, does that mean then that I'm supposed to give you license to just cut up and act a fool? Nope. That's not what that means. So if you're hearing that, I didn't say that. Okay? It is ramifications for the sins that you commit this side of the grave. For example, if Sean decides... I'm going to murder somebody tomorrow. And he goes and does it. And the police arrest him and take him to prison. The Lord could save him in prison. Amen? Amen. And the state can still execute him. 
Right? Is he still forgiven? Yes. All right? I just want to be clear because I know, I know what people are hearing right now. Okay? When you forgive your brothers and sisters in the faith, we're put aside for a moment because I know we want to get into the weeds about, well, what am I supposed to do if they did this or they did that? That's not the point that I'm making right now. Okay? We'll have that Bible study later. Okay? What I'm talking about is your brothers and sisters in a local church, you should have in your mind already made up that when this person offends me, when this person says something I don't like, when this person sins against me, when this person turns their back on my preference, I'm going to be the mature Christian in this situation and love them in spite of it. Does that make sense to you? That's how you maintain the bond of unity in peace in, in the church, right? So listen, this is what the Bible, oh, I'm sorry, we're in Roman numeral number four. So the church, Roman numeral number four, number four. No, 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 on the handout, Roman numeral number four on the handout. Um, the church needs God-built unity and diversity, but it needs to be around the gospel. So when a local church is missing these qualities, right, it's missing something else. It's missing the confirmation of the power of the gospel and the preservation of the gospel, potentially, okay? So what we mean by the confirmation of the gospel, we read this already in Ephesians 3.10. It says, I'm going to start at 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to all the rulers and authorities in, he in the heavenly places, right? So again, what is it that makes these rulers and authorities in heavenly places wonder at the glory of God? It's what it is that they wonder at, according to this passage, is, is that the unity that exists between diverse Christians. They look at that and they go, wow, how are these people one? How are these people unified? You understand? How are these people unified? How are these people one? So, it's interesting that in the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, like, consecutively, you'll notice what's happening is, is that every time the gospel, so in Acts 1, the Bible says, he tells the disciples, go to the upper room, wait for power to come, so that you could be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And then as you read the book of Acts, what starts to happen is, is that every time they go to those places, you see these signs and wonders, right? That's why you don't see them in every place. You see them in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then Cornelius in the uttermost parts of the world, right? It's confirmation that God is doing this, okay? So you see these signs and you see these wonders. You see miraculous healings and people speaking in tongues. And these confirm that this message from the apostles is a message from the throne room of God. This gospel is not something that men made up. It's something that God has delivered to save his people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, 
right? But then if you, as you read through the book and they start to revisit those same places, again, a second time, you don't hear about signs and wonders and miracles. The focus then is on strengthening the church at that point, strengthening the local churches. So the, like, again, the book of Acts doesn't explicitly state, like, here's the pattern, but if you read it, you just see it. So it's not too far, it's not a huge leap for us to make this connection, that miraculous signs and wonders are God's temporary confirmation of the gospel until his normal confirmation of the gospel is in place. Now, what's the normal confirmation of the gospel? Unity in local churches. That's what Ephesians 3.10 is saying. It says, so that, that's a purpose statement, right? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Your unity in a local church among a diverse group of people who should not be unified normally was given to the church to confirm that God is at work in this place. Does that make sense to you? So if a man stands up in the, in the first century, stands up, he goes, I got a message from God. He says, you don't no longer have to sacrifice those animals. You just need to put your faith in, that, in a dead Jewish carpenter that resurrected from the dead. What are they going to say? How do they know what's going to authenticate that message? Okay, in Acts, what authenticated that message was Paul, started ra- Paul raised people from the dead and they healed the sick, right? So let me rewind a little bit. Okay, you need to define miracles the way the Bible does. Okay, let me explain to you what I mean. If you say it's the 30th of the month, my rent's due tomorrow, I don't have any money, and your neighbor came and gave you money, that's not a miracle, that's providence. God used normal means to bless you, amen, hallelujah, Praise the Lord, he did that, but he used normal means to do that. Somebody wrote you a check, gave you some cash, physically walked to your door, knocked on the door, and handed you the money. God did it, but it was providential. Miraculous is God suspends nature to do something that's not supposed to happen. Do you understand? And so... Miracles in the Bible confirm the message of the gospel. Does that make sense to you? In John chapter, I think it's 20, verse 30, he says, Jesus did so many miracles that you couldn't put them in, 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 in books, right? But these, in the book of John, were written down so that you would know that he is the Christ, right? So every time you read a miracle in John, what is it proven to you? What's it there for? To prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Right? So when you read about Jesus turning water into wine, right? You should, your primary question shouldn't be, can I drink wine? That's not really the point. You should be asking, how does this prove that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah? Okay? So, you fast forward, right? 
all the apostles die, the confirmation, the miraculous confirmation that we have now that God is still at work is that all of these diverse people are unified in one local church. That's the proof. That's miraculous. That is absolutely miraculous because you're not supposed to do this. You're not supposed to do this. Right? Julian, would, I, would me and you even know each other and be friends if we didn't both love Jesus? No. I doubt it. Let me give you an example. Um, Robinson. What do me and you have in common? Aside from knowing Jesus. We're human. Anything else? Oh, we both lived in the Caribbean. Yeah, we have same organs. And we both lived in the Yeah, we both lived in the Caribbean. That's the only thing we have in common. Nothing else. Nothing else at all. At all. What do we have in common, Miss Kim, you and I? Socially. What's your favorite kind of music? Classical. I'm sure you're looking at me thinking I love classical music. Right? <laughs> me and this woman literally have nothing in common outside of the fact that we both have the same savior, right? Nothing in common. Now, there are some people in here that I have, I would have more things in common with socially, because of my age, because of where I'm from, things like that. But even still, our love for Jesus, the fact that we've both been saved is supposed to transcend all of that. And it's supposed to be miraculous, right? People are supposed to see you with your brothers and sisters in the church and go, why are you friends with them? Why are you closer to them than you are to your own family? Right? It's supposed to be, it's supposed to look odd and different and distinct from the world. It's supposed to look that way. Right? Let me see. Um, ah. I, need to, I need to jump ahead. I need to jump ahead. I'm sorry. Look on your handouts. <clears throat> so we need to figure out what does this look like to maintain, well, on the last Roman numeral, um, what's your role? What's your role, right? What does it look like for us to maintain this bond of unity, right? It's not easy. It's very difficult. It is absolutely difficult to do this, right? So one of the mistakes, we, we land in two ditches here, okay? We land in two, one or two ditches. We go, okay, yes, we should be unified. Therefore, this particular um, group of people should just put down all of their preferences and put down all of their differences and just flatten them out and be like me. That's one extreme. Okay, and then the other extreme is to say that the church should absolutely accommodate every wish and desire that everybody else has, no matter what it is, right? So that's the, those are the two extremes, right? So we talked about why this is a problem, why this could, why this could um, make false unity, because if my only goal is unity for the sake of unity, right? and I don't want to offend 
all of the middle-aged soccer moms, right? Then when I get in the pulpit, I'll never preach about their sin because I'm going to run them off, right? So it's not unity for the sake of unity. It's unity around the gospel. But that doesn't mean that you get to flatten out everybody's differences and say that we're not different at all, okay? Because then what you do then is you rob God of his glory in what he's doing. You understand? So our Spanish-speaking brothers and sisters, you do not understand what it is that they go through to be a part of this church, okay? I would encourage you to go sit in that Spanish group when Pastor Vladimir is preaching and try to get through them singing in another language, preaching in another language, and somebody sitting next to you interpreting how much they have to fight through this in order to love you as your brother and sister in the Lord. That is very, very difficult, right? And you, you make a mistake when you say you should just flatten all of that out and just this is the way that it is, this is the way that it is here, and if you want to hear, if you want to go to this church, you should be here. That is a terrible attitude for you to have. What's supposed to happen is what you need to do is you need to say, brother, sister, talk to me and explain to me, why are you still here? And then listen to them explain to you what Jesus has done in their heart. Do you understand? We don't want to live in either one of these extremes. Because no matter what church you go to, there's going to always be a dominant culture there. That is just the way, that's just the way it is. You just got to deal with it. There's going to be a dominant culture. And if it's a diverse church, there's going to be undominant cultures, less than dominant cultures, less prominent cultures. And somebody is going to act, have to act like a Christian and put their preferences aside for the sake of unity. So your response should be, brother, sister, how can I help you do this? And talk to me about the difficulties of it so that you can see what God is doing here. Right? You can see what God is doing here. And it's not easy. And it's not supposed to be. It's not supposed to be easy because it's supposed to look like a miracle. It's supposed to look like only Jesus can do this. Okay? Here's what I want you to do. You got some homework. You got some homework. Look on your handouts. So on your handout, it's an exercise. It says, write down five to ten of your closest friends. If you don't have ten friends, you should. It's like 200 people in this church. You should have ten friends. Okay? At least five. Okay? And then I want you to answer these questions down here. Do your friendships have diversity of age? So, you write down one of your friends. I got a friend, Jill. Okay? So you write her name down, Jill. And then you go, are Jill and I of the same age? If you say yes, don't put an A there. If y'all of her different ages, then you put an A. That makes sense to you? So let me give you an example. Yes, sir. Uh, when you said you gave the example of in the church, so are you combining this just like believers in the 
Yes, I'm talking about in the church. Or in not necessarily, I mean, just Christians. Christians, yes, Christians. So like, so like, for example, Daniel, how old are you? I'm old enough to be his father. Okay? So if I put Daniel, we have a diversity in age. Right? So I'll put an A there. Political affiliation. Right? I know this one is going to be difficult. Right? If you're a Democrat, do you have Republican friends? And if you're a, De a Republican, do you have any friends that are Democrats and independents and vice versa? Okay? If you cannot be friends with somebody of a different political persuasion, something's, something's broken. Okay? Legitimately broken. Okay? Different personality types. Okay? Are all, do all of your friends look, act, think, believe, behave, and are running in the same social circles as you? You need to think about that. I'm going to tell you who, who's going to have a really hard time with this. All of the, I keep picking on y'all, the middle-aged soccer moms. The married middle-aged soccer moms, because the, na the natural tendency is to group together around all of the people who are doing the same things that we're doing because they understand what we're going through and they understand what we're dealing with and it's way easier for us to get through these things together. But that's not always what you need because they're going to let you wallow in the sin that you shouldn't be in because y'all probably all are struggling with the same thing. It is a violation of common sense, young men, for you to be struggling with a particular sin of the internet that I'm not going to mention because we got little kids in the room, okay? For you to gather yourself around a bunch of men of the same age struggling with the same thing. Do you understand? That is ridiculous. You need to have some diverse groups of friends that don't struggle with the same things that you do so that they can tell you how ridiculous it is and help you get out of it. That make sense to you? So, you need to do some self-assessment, that's the exercise, and write down your friends and see how diverse your friendships are. Does that make sense to you? I'm going to text everybody in here. I'm expecting you to bring this homework back, okay? You're going to bring it back, right? Because y'all not talking to me today. Yes. All right. <laughs> do the homework, bring it back. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so. Okay, I think that mature men and women, I'm prefacing this word mature, men and women should be able to be of the opposite gender and friends. However, the reality of the situation is hormones and sin being such that they are, okay? It's probably not the wisest thing in the world to do that. Should you be able to do that? Absolutely. Most oftentimes you can't. And you need to know your own proclivities and know whether or not you're capable of doing so. And if you can, by all means do so. But if you can't, don't. It's not that deep. Make sense to you? Did I answer your question? All right.
Did everybody follow the question and the answer? Right. So you should be able to, but if you can't, you need to grow up. Amen? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your mercy and kindness to us. Help us, God, to work through these things for your glory so that we might be a church that is uh, diverse, not because of any kind of man-fabricated diversity and unity, but because of what you've done in us in, in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.